Welcome to another episode of This Catholic Life, conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical and joyful. Today's show is about football and faith. Well, actually, quite a lot more on the faith, I suspect, because it's a conversation with a good friend and former AFL footballer, Stephen Lawrence. Welcome, Stephen. Hi, Pete. How are you? All right. We're, we're <laughs> renewing an old conversation, really, or one that hasn't really stopped over the years. That's um, true. So full disclaimer, Steve and I have been having this kind of conversation over coffee and meals for, for some time now. So and it's always great joy, to be... Pete. <laughs> good, good. I'm glad to hear it's still that way. Yeah. Let's go back to well, well before I met you. I saw today, and I was looking up some research here that I'd done some time ago when we first talked about an interview, that you started, you were born in South Africa and mm -hmm. came to Australia, but you started, um, or at least you began your football career in Mount Gravatt. Is that right? That's true. That's true. Good grief. In the juniors down there. Look, it's actually uh, because of my dad's background in cricket and hockey, my, my, my summer and winter sports were cricket and hockey, and I played a lot right. of other things. But it was a friend of mine who'd come from Melbourne uh, who said, why don't you play Aussie Rules? And actually, to be honest, the only impression I ever had of it was a Saturday afternoon uh, turning on Channel 7 and seeing this game that looked like spaghetti, you know, players <laughs> running in every direction. I was used to games where you had one team here and one team there and offset, yep. offsides like rugby and soccer and hockey and things. Well, almost and every this, ball sport in the world, isn't it, well, that's has true. an offside I, rule? But there looked like a lot of running and, and I thought, this looks like fun. So I started take, I took it up with him in his club, which was Malkovat, which was across the road from my school, and uh, it went from there. Yeah, I mean, it did go from there. I mean, I played football in school, but uh, I, that's about as far as it went, mate. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> you, you were playing in a handful of Quaffle games with Morningside, I think, and then ended up playing 146 games, is that right, over tw uh, 11 seasons with um, Hawthorne. That's true. I, I, I played 12 years at Hawthorne, but one of them I didn't get to play any senior games. That was at, right at the beginning as a 17-year-old. But, yeah, I played 146 games for the Hawks and um, – was a you know a great blessing to be part of that. It was really a lot of hard, a lot of growing up, <laughs> um, but also you know some really good adventures. And I was very fortunate to be there at the end of that great eighties premiership reign. Yeah, because uh, you played in seven finals, including the nineteen ninety one premiership. And yeah. is it true? I heard a rumor that you were pretty close to the like you had some high votes in the Norm Smith for that game. Is that right? The winner of the Norm Smith was Paul Deere, who kicked six goals and deserved to win it. He had a fantastic game. <laughs> He but did. I, 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 it's true to say that a lot of people would say that I, a lot of people say, oh, you should have won, you should have won the medal. And Jamie Morrissey is another one, or, you know, so probably most people would say that we were the three best players on the ground. But certainly yeah. I was one of those in contention. Yeah. It was a great game. Yep. I actually watched that game, uh, not, not at the ground, uh, regretfully, because I never actually got to the, the, the grand final yet. But um, it it's, uh, must have been a huge experience to be part of something so huge. I mean, very it few was. people outside of Australia understand how big it is. It, it is massive. It's actually also unusual in that it was one of two grand finals in the modern era that didn't get played at the MCG, last year's one being the Brisbane game uh, because of COVID. But the previous one was while the MCG was being uh, renovated in 1991. So we played the right. game at Waverley, which was our home game and <laughs> probably gave us a bit of an advantage apart from the fact that it was in Melbourne and not in Perth because we played the Eagles. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was amazing to be in that and to be able to win uh, and win a premiership. At the time, I probably expected that we would play in more because Hawthorne had played in, you know, nine uh, consecutive or uh, nine grand finals in the course of a period of years over the 80s. And we missed 1990, but 
were in the grand finals all the way from 83 till 91, which was amazing, you know. Uh, and there, But all of the, mm. a lot of those guys then retired, and so uh, we moved into a kind of medium-type range team. Right. So, but yeah, it was, and I was only 22 when, when we won that prim. It's actually the 30th anniversary this year. It was 30 years ago. And there you there's, go. There's going to wow. be a big reunion at the end, you know, in, in July and things like that. So <laughs> it's, there's a lot going on for that reunion. But it's funny to think it's a third of a century almost ago. And I think, gosh, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm yeah. about to become well, a grandfather, actually. So it's funny that I, I yeah. think, gee, I feel young still, but, but, in fact, I'm getting old. <laughs> oh, you're still looking young, Steve. You perhaps, perhaps would. I mean, seeing the guys running around now on the ground, you think mm, maybe I'm not quite that young. But yeah, that's, true. <laughs> you know, that's true. When you see half of them that are out there, they could be my own kids. You know, the age my, my son's already past the age of most of those players now. So, yeah. Having said that, that's a good segue into the question I have about what about being a Christian. Mm-hmm. or a Catholic in that world of sport because it's not known, especially back then, it wasn't known for being kind of, you know, people who wanted to have straight-laced sort of life. It wasn't known for harbouring that kind of thing. <laughs> What's well, interesting, it's 40, a footy club is made up of all sorts of different kind of people, actually, uh, obviously usually high-achieving type people. But it's true that the media does give certain prominence to ca- certain kinds of characters, uh, and, and perhaps more so in those days than these. But yeah, there's a lot of different kind of players, and um, yeah, I guess the faith question was. I was very sensitive about this when I first arrived at Hawthorne, mainly because I actually my faith was uh, really grew in the context of my parents' separation, and that there was a period of five or six years of great conflict in my home, where um, actually my mum was perhaps quite aggressive towards faith, and my dad, and there's a whole story in all of that. And it was really my faith was deepened in the middle of of that furnace, I would say. And I came to really have a deep conviction about faith, and I had a prayer life, and I was living the sacraments and all of that. And so when I arrived at Hawthorne, I was perhaps oversensitive to how I might be uh, received, and perhaps oversensitive to any kind of persecution or or so on. So I really went out of my way to make it not known that I would be was a committed Catholic. But eventually, of course, you can't not do that. You can't do that. So there were a number of different moments which were testing moments for me and, and called me to really, I mean, try and be authentic as a person, which, I mean, I always tried to be, didn't always succeed, but try and be authentic as a person and, and, and live up to my beliefs, but also occasion, like, and to try and get to Mass, for example, on a Sunday when you travelled and those sorts of things, which I always was able to do. I mean, if you really want to get to Mass in a city, you, you can. Well, normally <laughs> putting COVID aside. <laughs> COVID notwithstanding. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, most cities have, you know, a number of Masses in a day, so you can, yeah. if you want to really do it, you can. Um, but also the question of actually testifying to my faith or having to remove myself from situations which were, um, <laughs> you know, something that morally I compromised. Exactly. Yeah. So there were some key moments like that which um, I did yeah. have to. I found I found myself facing really testing moments that I had to say, look, this is what I stand for, and and, and going for that. But you said you were talking about a reunion before, and that seems to indicate you're still good friends with these people. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no. What's interesting, I, I, I might sh- tell you one of these stories because it has a, it has a very interesting um, lesson that I discovered from it many years later. So it took place in 1994 when all of the players were getting going to a training camp at Phillip Island, two hours drive away, and we got in the bus and the bus driver turned on a pornographic film. Bang, like that, you know, as we're driving out. And I'm sitting right at the back of the bus where tall guys happen to have to sit to get some, right in the middle. 
And I'm thinking, oh my God, I don't need this. You know, <laughs> you know, it's poison, this stuff. And I, but also at the same time, I, you know, and there's all the players going, hey! you know, you could imagine in a bus. And I thought, oh Lord, you know, help me to get out of this. How do I just was firstly thinking of self preservation? I don't need this going through my mind and so forth. And I said a prayer. I said, Lord, you've got to help me here. And I looked out. I thought I'll try and just look out the window. But of course, the sound effects are going on. And, you know, and anyway, I found myself standing up and walking the length of the bus. And as I walked halfway down, there was this roar that came up from the players like, oh, you know, because by this time, there'd already been a few moments where they knew that I at least tried to stand up, stand up for what I believed and uh, be authentic as I could. And so that Stevie is going to do something, you know. So anyway, by the time I got, I didn't know what I would do and I was nervous and my, you know, I was, my knees were knocking and I was, I was terrified. I was still right, quite young. I was in my early 20s. But I thought, what am I going to do? And I, I finally, as I arrived just at the bus driver, I noticed that the player sitting immediately behind him, a guy named Luke McCabe, who I knew was 17. I'm sure it was a Holy Spirit moment. And so I, I got this idea and I leaned down to the bus driver's ear and I said, you have a minor on board this bus. What you're doing is illegal. Turn it off. <laughs> now I don't even know if that was true, but um, it, now it I expected him to turn around and sort of you know get F off or whatever. Yeah. But to my surprise, he just simply turned it off. I mean, often there's opposition right. in these moments, but nothing. But then I had, of course, turn around and then walk back and face my fifty teammates <laughs> who were looking at me, who were quite enjoying what had been going on, and I expected the proverbial tomatoes to be thrown at me. <laughs> nothing happened. No one said a right. word. I wa in fact, it was twice as far walking back as it was walking down. I sat down <laughs> and nobody, no, the players to my side, nobody said anything. That training camp, no one referred to it. It was never referred to it. That year, that year, the whole season, it was never once referred back to. And I was quite surprised by that. In fact, after a period of time, I thought, did I, did I imagine that? Like, was it, was it, like, was it just a dream or was it imagined? Mm. The whole of my football career, which was another seven seasons at Hawthorne, not once was it ever referred to. In fact, it was only 18 years later that it was raised by one of my teammates. Actually, it was the funeral of Alan Jeans, Hawthorne legendary coach, and I was with Andy Collins and Darren Pritchard, two of my teammates, and Andy Collins raised it. He said to me, just out of the blue, he said, Stevie, do you remember that time you turned the porno off on the bus? I said, yes, I remember. <laughs> I'm not imagining it. I'm not going mad. He said, I need to tell you something about that. I said, oh, what? What? Are you, what? He goes, well, as you know, I've been coaching in South Australia, in the South Australian Football League for the last few years, and I'm often asked to go and speak at schools or in business uh, groups or you know community groups or whatever, and often on the topic of leadership. And he said, I want you to know, I always tell that story. Wow. I said, I said, are you kidding? I've never heard it back. You know, He said, I reckon I've told that story to about 10,000 people. I said, <laughs> I said, are you serious? Here am I thinking no one even knows about, like it's just this moment of awkwardness where everyone thinks I'm an idiot type of thing. Yep. And he said, and I want, you to, I want you to know this, that when I say it, I say that it's the greatest act of leadership I've ever seen. That's what he said, not what I'm saying. Mm. And he said, because you knew it was the right thing to do, you knew no one really agreed with you, but you did it anyway. Yep. And, I, and that was really important for me to hear this back and to realize, you know, we just never know our audience. Yes. You can't judge what's the right thing to do by just how many people are watching or anything like that. And often that's because we're judging the audience based on their reaction right 
then, right at yeah. that moment. Yeah. And you, what you've just pointed to there is that you're not when we when we act, when we say things, it's not just about that moment. It's about the impact it's going to have for a lifetime. That's it. And and so I, I really think that there was a grace given. I mean, you don't plan those moments. They happen in the moment. You know, they Yes. And the question is, what? Are, how are we going to respond? And I'm not saying I've always done the right thing every time and all that. But in this mm. moment, I was given the grace and I responded to that grace to to do the right thing. I had no idea what the outcome would. I couldn't strategically think this is going to be the impact. And all that. You just don't know. The question is, just do what's right. <laughs> and but also go the for key it, was you know? in that story is that as you as you stood with, with genuine concern, like most of us when we approach such a situation, you were asking for God's help. You, you called on the Holy Spirit's aid. Absolutely key. Absolutely key. Yeah. yeah. So coming from that, I mean, you've talked about friendships and we just never know that. I mean, I was just talking uh, last night with a friend about St. Luke. I mean, he's not St. Luke, uh, St. Stephen, who was stoned to death outside of Jerusalem and preached yeah. this amazing homily <laughs> and they stoned him to death. <laughs> and you'd think he would be thinking, what's the point? You know, what? why am I making the effort? And then... One of the lines, the key line of his whole homily is that is used again in the book of Acts when St. Paul preaches in Athens. And it's one of the most amazing moments. I mean, imagine St. Stephen in heaven looking down and going, hey, hey, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. what I said. And St. Paul, who was there to kill him at the time when he heard it, has turned around his whole life and is now preaching the gospel yeah. in, a, in yeah. the capital of the world's so-called wisdom. It's yeah. a pretty amazing story. We just don't know what the Holy Spirit can do with the seeds we, you know, that are sown through us. I reckon on this one, Pete, I, I think it's something significant about the fact that they're laying their cloaks at his feet. And I, I remember praying about this one time, and it struck me, the whole story of Elijah and Elisha, you know, how he handed on his cloak and therefore he got a double portion of his spirit. It's sort of a symbol. And I think in yep. some ways... Paul received the grace through the sacrifice of Stephen. You know, it's, there's a, there is this whole mystery somehow of the grace of, sac like Jesus' sacrifice, etc. It passes on this gift. And, you know, in these moments, we don't know how God is operating, what the Holy Spirit is doing. We just make ourselves available, and, and it's a mystery sometimes. You know, a lot of things we're not going to know about in, until heaven, but... Often we think we want to dictate to God what um, what the our witness should be and 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 the feedback because like you said you hadn't heard anything about that that act or anything about it and you would expect it to be immediate and and quite hostile but you just never know and in fact I doubt we'll ever know the witness I know my own father won't ever know how much impact he had on me yeah. um, the people I I learned from in Sunday school the people who taught me Bible studies the people I went through I went through a Lutheran seminary. Yeah. I never got a chance to tell most of them the impact they've had Absolutely. on me. And if I did say it, I'm not sure they would hear it because it's, it's a hard thing to hear when someone says that to you. The point you raised about the importance of prayer, prayer I think is really important because I know that there was one year where I was concerned about the fact that I was having to play a game on Easter Sunday. And the question of whether to play on Sunday was really always a bit of a struggle for me because, you know, you want to give the day to the Lord and so forth. And it was my work. So it wasn't just – and Sunday games, I thought, oh, you know. And this one particularly, it was 1994, we had to play an Easter game on Easter Sunday. When I saw the, the fixture, I thought, oh, what do I do? Should I really do something here as a committed Catholic? Should I make a stand and say, look, I'm not playing or whatever? I prayed about it. And I said, Lord, show me what, what I should do. And I struggled with it for a few weeks. Um, and it came to uh, Holy Week, which was early, early in the season, and the coach, um, and I decided I would, I would play, 
because I felt that the Lord was saying, well, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Of course, put the Lord first in mass, but still, there's other, you have other responsibilities, etc. So that was my conviction anyway. And, but then at the beginning of that week, beginning of Holy Week, prior to the game on the Easter Sunday, the coach said to us, this Friday being a public holiday, we're going to not train at five, which we used to do at that time, but we're going to train at three o'clock. That's three o'clock on Good Friday, you know. It's not a movable <laughs> feast. I can't just go to you know the service at four in the morning, you know, six in the morning. Or yeah, whatever. yeah. And I so I went up to him afterwards. And this is Peter Knights, who was our coach, and didn't have a re- religious background, so he didn't really understand. But I explained to him. I said, "Oh, Nancy, look, I, I really don't. I can't really come at three o'clock because <laughs> of training. Because this is the moment that we believe Jesus actually died on the cross, and it's the why we have the." three o'clock yep. service. I said, I'm not trying to get out of training, but I can't come at three. And he said, look, there are moments when you've got to make sacrifice, when you've got to make compromises. I said, well, maybe, but this is not one of them. <laughs> and he said, okay. I said, and he said, okay, well, how about this? How about you come down at one o'clock? You and I have a training session and you can be gone by 2.30. I said, great. What was interesting was he and I had what I considered to be my favorite training session in my whole footy career. It was like a father-son moment. He was still a very fit guy at that stage. He was a superstar player in the 70s. But we, like, you know, punched each other and tackled and all that. (laughs) And as it turns out, on the Easter Sunday match, we played Richmond, and I was the best on the ground. It didn't happen a lot, but it happened on this occasion. (laughs) And after the Thanks for that reference to Richmond there. uh, (laughs) Sorry. Well, they've been winning all the premierships. (laughs) They can hardly be too upset. But I've been praying for the grace to – I said, Lord, I I, – I'll play this match, but I really pray for the grace that you give me an opportunity to give witness to your resurrection. I was specifically praying for that. Anyway, after the match, I was put on the radio in the rooms. I'm half-dressed and all that. And I'm like the Sam Newman and a bunch of people um, on this radio. And there was some kind of stuff up that was happening. And they said, look, we're not quite ready to talk about the match yet, Stephen. There's a few things going on here. In the meantime, just tell us, what's news with you? And I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, this is an absolute half-volley. I mean, I've been praying for the grace to give witness to the resurrection. It's Easter Sunday, and they asking me what's news, you know, like that. And I said, "Well, <laughs> okay. actually, I've got great news. Today is Easter Sunday. Jesus rose from the dead." <laughs> <laughs> and it opened up this conversation, which you know went for a few minutes before we even started to talk about the match. And it was a real grace. The Holy Spirit just, and it's amazing how many people told me in the months that followed that they heard that interview and they were touched by something, you know, or they're able to tell their grandchildren or something like this. And I knew that, you know, when we, and I realized, you know, I don't pray enough for these opportunities. And I know St. Paul says, pray that we can be given opportunity to give witness. It's not just human effort. It's the Lord who opens the door. So to pray and pray and pray, these are the sort of things that I'd, I'd, I've slowly learned. But uh, I realized that was a moment really given. And it was often, and it was given in the midst of a struggle. It wasn't, it's not easy, you know, like there's this, wrestle and the lord is wanting to, so every wrestle we have i think we should think rather than thinking oh help me get out of this it's like actually i want to give you something in the middle of this you know to and to share moments, with others you know the moments of hardship and and perhaps even conflict are, are quite often moments that stick in people's minds whether or not they were for or against us in that moment they they really like they tip what we call teachable moments they're yeah. the moments where the way you act you know shows whether you 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 believe what you believe, and and whether or not there's an integrity there. Some of the hardest moments in that I thought I'd nearly stuffed up or did stuff up as a father 
my kids will recite back to me as a <laughs> lesson they learned because it was such a like that was the car accident you know that's how you acted in the car accident <laughs> oh great i wasn't I was, I was thinking that's the day i get a pass from being a good dad <laughs> because i'm stressed out and but yes, no yes. it was it was all about how you acted in that moment so that's a pretty good insight mm. perhaps we should um i mean it's good one really good thing about the fact that you've had all this experience is the fact that you haven't wasted like it hasn't just sort of just been at the benefit of your friends and those around you you've actually spent a lot of time spreading it so even while you're in melbourne you help set up the uh, emmanuel community which is an international community but you help set it up in australia yeah. um can we just talk briefly about the the basic tenets of the emmanuel community <laughs> well i met the emmanuel community when i was traveling in france and i was a 20 year old and i was so enamored i felt really called immediately especially by a strong encounter with the heart of jesus uh and and also through you know a beautiful experience of um, a, a mission that's deeply Catholic, uh, wanting to uh, really live according to the magisterium of the church, um, but also a call to holiness in daily life. It's made up of people of all states of life, so mostly lay people, married people, single people, and so on, men and women, but also um, you know consecrated men and women and priests who are you know part of the Emmanuel community, living and living as brothers and sisters, but also on mission. So it's basically a call to holiness and mission according to the charisms of adoration, compassion, and evangelization. So beginning with adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, so the Eucharist is very central, Mass and adoration, long time of personal prayer and praise. And really from that time with Jesus, with his heart, we're transformed and our heart becomes more like his. So we're loving the people, hopefully, more and more with his heart and their practical material needs, that's the compassion, uh, but also the deepest, most profound need, which is to know him, uh, and his mercy, and uh, that's the evangelization. So it's basically cool. those three charisms is is the spirit of the Emmanuel community. Yeah, right. I could well, go you, on forever. Will, yeah. <laughs> I'll let you. It's probably enough for the well, you know in terms of the base for now. But I mean that that segues nicely into the fact that you were then um, went back to Rome and headed the Rome School of Mission, I think, for for a couple of years. Yeah. So we Annie and I were part of the beginnings of the community when we were in our just our, like after our. Honeymoon, basically, we went there and we came back and we were asked to, you know, we had no idea what we were really doing, uh, but we just said yes. <laughs> uh, and then we were in charge of the community in Melbourne. It has a different foundation in Sydney, but it's just a one community. And we were seven years in charge of that until we went to Rome. This was So a lot of that time happened while I was still playing footy and I was right. working in youth ministry for Melbourne Archdiocese under Cardinal Pell as Archbishop of that. Melbourne. And, yeah, you and I had our coffees and things. So a lot of things going on. Parallel. I was also studying a fair bit at the time, so you know, yeah. and having family, we, we ended up having six. Children. And I think you were responsible for the Thursday night adoration at the cathedral there in Melbourne. Um, didn't you start that? No. Well, I, I would say the, the adoration, uh, which was a feature of the youth ministry in this latter part of it, and then the World Youth Day two thousand, it grew out of that. But I would say that it was Mark Florio and Anna Snardich who became D'Souza. Uh, and then Louisa Ashton and people like that, who've had yep. some of whom have had quite a lot of connection to the Emmanuel community, because that we Lovely. left straight. We left to go to Rome straight after the World Youth Day 2000, because I went in September for three years there. Yeah. And yeah. so yeah, that kind of after World Youth Day kind of really flowed out of the grace of that. But they they really did that, mm. not me. Yeah. And so when you came back, Cardinal Pell snapped you up to be involved in uh, chaplaincy, uh, university chaplaincy here in Sydney, and we 
touch base a number of times through there in terms of working with the young kids, and I was a speaker at a number of events there. Yeah, um, but eventually <laughs> that moved you into a, a reasonably high-level job in helping with World Youth Day. In yeah. particular, I think I remember, I mean, there's all sorts of fancy titles, but I think I remember you being introduced to the Pope as this is the guy that's supposed to make World Youth Day Catholic or yeah. something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it's probably the most important part. I think there's lots of other important parts of the organisation, but I remember lots of conversations we had about that we wanted, that you wanted in particular, of course I wanted, but you were the one driving it, to have the every kid that came know Christ and to come away with that experience with Christ. That was the point. <laughs> That's the point <laughs> that of the event. That was the point. Uh, that yeah, was the true. point. Yeah. So when the when the cardinal set up the World Youth Day, um, I mean, he he got a Bishop Anthony Fisher in charge and da Danny Casey, and there was uh, two other directors that started up at that time. Just after that time, this was November two thousand five. Um, one of whom was me, and the other was the director of operations, um, Ian Steigrad. And in the, in total, there were six directors. I was director of evangelization and catechesis, and there was another director who was in charge of liturgy, and then more practical other ones as, as well as um, communication. So I guess of the of the of the six directors, the two that were mostly to do directly with faith uh, uh, were were liturgy and mine, which was uh, evangelization mm. and catechesis. So it was a, it was uh, a, yeah. So when the cardinal introduced me to Pope Benedict, that's what he said. He said, "Oh, Steve was in charge." Of, I think he overstated it, but it's what he did say. He said. Uh, Steve was in charge of making it a religious and spiritual event. <laughs> and here am I, you know, actually, I, I actually went through a very difficult period for three years. And when I finished at the end of uh, December the 21st, 2008, and the whole World Youth Day office and the post mop up was finished, it was like having climbed Mount Everest, to be honest. It was really, really hard. Uh, but it's true. It was really, um, I mean, extraordinary grace. It was through all of that. I mean, I remember one time one of the guys saying to me, a guy named Steve Karekas, I don't know if you know him, but he's he's been to seven or eight World Youth Days. I've been to six. And, you know, he, he said to me, look, in the end, this was during one of my great difficulties, he said, in the end, the young people will come, the Pope will come, and the Holy Spirit will come. And it doesn't really matter what you do. <laughs> it, was, it was a little bit deflating, but at the same time quite liberating that ultimately it's God's work and, uh, you know, we do, we, we do our best, but um, it's really. So, look, it's, it was amazing. It was an extraordinary grace. and. Uh, yeah, I loved it. From there, you've taken your lessons and your and your um, experiences, and also um, your c capacity to inspire people. and And you've worked as a director of identity, identity and mission for ACU. You've worked in school Catholic schools in Victoria, um, yeah. and that's sort of moved with all of that experience and all of your experience, especially with young people and and touching their hearts. Yeah. And I've noticed that you've. On your bio, it says that you've been studying the whole idea of masculinity and the spirituality yeah. attached to that. Yeah. And your current work seems to be in Catholic leadership, consulting, coaching, and formation. And I, yeah. I constantly, I'm very blessed to get the the texts which update you on which which place you're speaking, and we always pray for you. Thank you. How does this come about? I mean, you've obviously got a ministry there. Yeah. It must have been a big decision to sort of go that way rather than sort of hold down the you know the nine to five us. Yeah, it it was a big decision. I I was um, so I had after three years after the World Youth Day finished, I had three years as director of um, identity and mission at ACU, which in a different way was very difficult. Uh, the university wasn't entirely supportive of the kind of things that I was trying to do, and so it, it had a lot of hardship. But there were a lot of fruits that came out of it as well. 
it has to be said that working in bureaucracies almost always works that way. That correct, correct. No, no matter how good the intention is, if you're in a bureaucracy, it's always going to feel like you're pushing that stone uphill. That's right. So, look, that was a great experience. I'm, gra- I'm, I'm glad that I did it, and there was a lot of great things about it and really good people that I knew. Um, but after those three years, I was – and having had this World Youth Day as well, so there was two, two, about six years of pretty hard yakka, to be honest. I was very bruised. <laughs> And the whole, and really, the Lord brought me into working at Masnod College in a secondary school for boys in a wonderful environment that I loved. For, it ended up, I thought it was only going to be for a couple of years, but it ended up being six. But during that period, I was in, I was, you know, in my sort of mid forties. I was thinking, I knew that it was something was not quite. I wasn't entirely satisfied with where I was at, as much as I loved the students and teaching, uh, and I was director of faith and mission. Like my, most of my roles, really have been ministry or education. Those are the the strands of that, but a lot of times speaking and coaching and things like that. And I, I, I went through a process of discernment um, using a whole range of different things that helped me to recognize that I I'm, I'm really, really want to spend a lot more time guiding and supporting leaders of Catholic leaders uh, in their leadership roles, helping them to become more faithful in, and more fruitful. So inspiring and equipping them to become really great Uh and assuming that they already desire, assuming they really desire that, and so that's mainly through speaking, and coaching, and consulting, which I right. I mean, you're that, also I doing had, some stuff with your wife in marriage, couples, and yeah. So, that sort so of I thing. started. I started actually a business, which um, so this is the business side of it, which is um, that I've called Altum Leadership Group. So I was right. living in Rome during the time of John Paul II's last years, and you know this Duke in Altum idea of go out into the deep, you know so inspired me to, you know, really do not be afraid to be the saints of the third millennium. That kind of vision, just absolutely, I was living in close proximity to him and I thought, wow, this is amazing. And so the idea of going to the heights, because the, the word altum means both high and deep in Latin. So reach to the heights, but we have to go to the depths. So there's this kind of idea, this is kind of apparent con- paradox, but in reality, it's a bit like, the, you know, my soul magnifies the Lord. I mean, we're, we're called to be great, but actually to live humble service, you know. So there's a sort of self-sacrifice that bears fruit. And so that, that's really what I've been trying to live. And it took probably took two years to really take off. I mean, it's probably been the last year and a bit where it's really started to take off in a big way, I think, um, and where the Lord has said to me, it's actually really what you – I actually had this whole experience of put the net on the other side, actually from that same Luke 5 passage, and, and – and because I was battling with on this, you know, there's nothing coming on that other side, and then put the net over, and it's just like filled with fish. So that's been a really what I've been experiencing, and um, I've been loving that. And I feel like I'm really in my sweet spot now, doing what I'm doing. Um, it's true though. Annie and I continue to do things through love through the Emmanuel community with, um, you know, like for married couples um, and yep. for young people and other things that I do. Just out of pure love. I mean, it's not. It's not right. only a living. It's not financial. So. For the listeners, we, we will ask Steve for his um, web links and throw them in the uh, show notes for this particular show, so you can check it out there and get in contact with him. Um, but what would you say, Steve? Out of all of this, we've got a couple more minutes before we have to wrap yeah. it up. What, what would you say to a young person who's out there, you know, wondering what to do with their life, yeah. looking, you know, they, they, they might have some of the faith. Um, but they don't quite know what that looks like in their life. What 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 advice would you give them? Pray. <laughs> I think always pray because God is real and He loves you and He knows what um, how He why He created you and what your purpose is. 
And I think you can only discover and realize our purpose in God. There's, we can't do it by ourselves. It's impossible. Uh, so pray that you will be led to the people and the places uh, and the, the the means that he wants to put on your path to help you make that re- to be realized. And then open up your eyes and ears and be attentive to that in your heart. Uh, because I think, firstly, you can't do it alone. You need to be with other people of faith. Uh, and not just for faith's purpose, but for your work, for your family, for your vocation, for just the way you live your ordinary life. You can't live, we can't do it alone. Um, and we, if there's nothing, if there's nothing more sure than that, I mean, New Testament is there's no examples of anyone doing it alone. We need <laughs> others, uh, and I think we we live in a very, very fragmented, very, very individualized society, yeah. and, it, and with all sorts of pressures saying, "Oh, even stand back, don't even get near people." I mean, this is yeah. outrageously diabolical, in my opinion. Um, mm. we, we need to go against that, and we need to say, "Well, there's a wisdom, a deeper wisdom that is available." How do I live my life in this very strange world and you know that the great joy of our lives can be discovered very simply and even if we're very far from god even if we feel like we're totally unworthy which we all are in one sense we can it can fla- change in a flash of a moment it really can change yes. and all we need to do is just turn our eyes to him you know we can be like peter walking on the water and then sink because we take our take notice of the the waves and the, and the wind and life's problems of course and they're they're always going to be there but what, yep. the reason why Peter was able to walk on the water was because his eyes were on Jesus. But he took them off, yes. and that's when he sank. So yep. we just have to call out, Lord, save me, and he will. Yep. But keep our eyes on him. I think that's the number one priority, eyes on Jesus. And, and maybe for people who really are worried about the state of the world and even the state of the church and all that, I would say, I think St. John is a key person for us at the moment. What did he do in the time of Holy Week, you know? He didn't jump up and down and make it, don't do this, no, that's all wrong and all that. He just stayed very close to the heart of Jesus at the Last Supper and then at the cross. He was the one who didn't die a martyrdom because he already kind of lived it because he was faithful. But what gave him the key? What was the key that allowed him to be faithful? Resting on the heart of Jesus. And I Mm. think he's the one attentive to the movement of the heart of Jesus. So that means we need to pray and come close, listen to the Word of God and trust Mm. that the Lord will bring us through the resurrection on the other side. And if your story that we've just heard um, is to teach us anything, it is that that God works through the times we aren't necessarily expecting him to, often the times that we think are actually the hard bits or that may be barriers and all those kinds of things. Yeah. And that, and that you know, I mean, one thing I'd add from my own experience is that building community is hard when you're trying to get what you want from other people. It's much easier when we see a need in someone else and respond to that need because mm-hmm. that's what ends up uniting us to you know we, we can come to someone in their need and 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 love them we probably need to wrap it up um yep. we've had an excellent conversation i hate to, as usual we always hated uh, finishing lunches but we have to stop for this week's podcast if today's discussion got you thinking or arguing with your podcast device let us know you can check out um steve's ministries in the links in the show notes uh, and you can check out future shows and past shows of This Catholic Life at thislackcatholiclife.com.au. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and all the usual social medias. Write us a review on iTunes. This is a uniquely Australian Catholic podcast. We reckon that's worth shouting about. So we'll be back next week, but that's all for now. Thank you for listening to This Catholic Life. This Catholic Life.